I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about urbanism, which, no, is not the name of my new personal idiosyncratic school of thoughts, but thanks for asking. Welcome to all of our listeners, welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon, and welcome today to Philip Bess and Nathaniel Gotcher. Philip is a professor at Notre Dame in its School of Architecture, where he teaches urban design and theory. He is the author of three books, one of which has the sweet above-the-line title, City Baseball Magic. He writes and lectures frequently on the Catholic and classical humanist intellectual and artistic traditions in the context of modern American life and the contemporary culture of architecture and urban design. And, I learned while preparing this little intro, in a past life, he used to be a cab driver in both Boston and Chicago. Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Our other guest today, who is not so much a guest, actually, as a substitute host, is my friend Nathaniel Gotcher, an alumnus of the same Notre Dame School of Architecture and currently a working architect in Philadelphia. Nathaniel has a special interest and expertise in church architecture, and he studies the theory of liturgical space with a focus on the Gothic tradition. Nathaniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Urban. It's great to be on, and it's it's great to to uh, be able to speak with you, Professor Bess, and and to discuss this really, I think, important uh, aspect of you know political thought. So, as I say, I'm going to let Nathaniel play host for our conversation today with Philip Bess because, despite my name. I'm not actually qualified to lead a discussion about urbanism. I'm a fan, don't get me wrong, and Nathaniel and I actually spend a lot of time back and forth in about the place of, well, place in the Catholic culture that we at the Josias are longing for. But I promise we'll all be in better hands today with Nathaniel leading this one, and I'll be here to interject just on behalf of the urbanist novice, the listener who's maybe curious about urban design and how all of this fits together but doesn't have any formal training here. So with that, Nathaniel, I will hand this over to you. Thanks, Urban. I think I, I, what I'd like to get started with is just a little bit of, of uh, background on, on your journey, uh, Professor, just to how you came into the study of, of, of urbanism and maybe relating back to uh, your work as a cabbie. <laughs> Actually, it's not unrelated. Um, Goodness, uh, I I took uh, I took a while to figure out my vocation, uh, or to to discover my vocation, or to hear my vocation. Um, I uh, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, uh, and then I did a degree in church history. Um, I, I'm I'm from Chicago originally, but moved to the West Coast when I was six years old, and and so grew up in Southern California between about 1958 and 1973, which is kind of peak California um, in terms of in terms of a whole lot of things. But um, but uh, studied philosophy as an undergraduate in California and then uh, did a, a two year master's degree in church history um, at Harvard. And it was while I was doing that and I had gone I'd gone to study church history for really kinds of existential reasons. There were things that I wanted to know about church history and there were Big gaps in my in my um, undergraduate education, um, and uh, and and while I was there, um, 
uh, in Cambridge. I was there for five years doing uh, the two-year degree. Um, but I, I converted to Catholicism and also decided that I wanted to um, uh, go to architecture school. And so um, uh, from, from Cambridge, I went to the University of Virginia and studied architecture for three years. I knew nothing about architecture going in. Uh, my, uh, my parents are uh, verbal um, and musical, but not visual. Um, my father's a Baptist minister. My mother's a teacher. Uh, and I, um, uh, and so architecture was a completely new experience for me. And, um, and it was a modernist architecture program as most were, but I didn't really have any idea of what that meant, um, going in. And so from the beginning, I was kind of thinking of, of, um, I think most people, the default, the default position, when you think about what architecture is and uh, is they think about making buildings, right? And that's that's not an unreasonable kind of assumption. But what you realize uh, uh, in, in studying the history of architecture um, is that uh, is the importance of cities, um, and that there's a reciprocal relationship between buildings and cities, and that cities are essentially, um, uh, uh, I would say, pre-modern cities are characterized by the making of uh, of figural space, uh, which which uh, is made in reciprocity with buildings, and that this is the uh, space is the medium, urban space is the medium, the medium of public life, and uh, and I was interested in in all those kinds of things, but it was very difficult to kind of put together uh, the uh, how all those things related uh, to each other. I, I worked in Chicago after graduate school. I went. After graduate school, I went in architecture. I went to Chicago and worked for five years in the city, um, and for an office that that was a, a, a pretty prominent office and uh, did a lot of prominent high rises both locally and internationally. And uh, I just at a certain point I realized I learned a lot um, being there, but I realized at a certain point that uh, I didn't like the kind of city that it was making, um, and I uh, set about trying to figure out how to. Uh, ways to do that. And that, this was happening in the mid-1980s, and it turned out a lot of people who were educated as modernists, a lot of architects were educated as modernists, and had misgivings about it, were thinking about those things, and eventually um, it, it kind of coalesced. There was actually, at the time, too, um, it was a period uh, in the culture of architecture of, of what came to be known as postmodern architecture. And architects tend to think of postmodernism in terms of uh, um, certain stylistic issues that began to to uh, appear and recur in that period, that's that's known as architectural postmodernism, w- which is a kind of postmodernism, but it doesn't have a, a there's a, there's a deeper understanding of postmodernism uh, of, the, of the postmodern condition that I think architects participated in at that time somewhat unknowingly. Uh, it's a it's a very it was a very uh, confusing time in the culture then as now, um, but it was a it was a, a struggle, uh, a challenge, um, uh, an interesting intellectual challenge to try to put together some coherent understanding of architecture that that was uh, related to my interests in uh, in communal culture, uh, to Catholicism, to a sense of the sacred, to a sense of beauty, uh, and to the characteristics of cities. So. So there was a lot that I rebelled against 
you know, in my architectural education, but there's a lot that I learned um, with respect to what historic cities are. And this is this is a long intro, but it it also it led me back in a certain way uh, to Aristotle. And I've been uh, ever since, I would say, slowly expanding my knowledge uh, and appreciation of of uh, an Aristotelian understanding of cities. And that at, that has been, uh, uh, which of course is a, I want to argue is is part of the of a Catholic understanding of cities as well. Though there's more to the the Catholic angle on it, but that's that's been something that I've been um, very interested in uh, in my teaching as well. So in in my uh, in my academic career, which began in the early '90s, um, that's been a central part of the urban design uh, courses that I've that I've taught is this kind of foundational Aristotelian understanding, both of sort of epistemology and, 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 you know, metaphysical realism and, and how we know things and that things can be known, but also, uh, for his understanding of the nature and purpose of cities. So that's, that's the long intro. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Uh, and, and a great jumping off point, uh, just sort of to, to the first question I wanted to ask, which is why should Catholics care about urbanism? And if I can just uh, interject quickly on behalf of uh, our ignorant bystanders like me, if we could get just a little intro to what the word urbanism means or how we should understand what we're talking about when we talk about urbanism um, and what this thing is that Catholics should care about, that'd be awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I've, I've thought about this some because we we use the word urbanism um it's just it's just one of those words that's part of our vocabulary um, at Notre Dame, and we we could and should do a better job of defining it uh, than than we do, I think, because the the, the fact that we call it urbanism um, suggests that it has a, a kind of ideological content um, to it, and um, and I would say to some extent to some extent it does, um, but I I think that. Um, uh, so I so I use that you know there's a an organization has arisen called the Congress for the New Urbanism, um, and uh, the, there's a, a a number of distinctions that kind of need to be made uh, with respect to the the activities that that urbanists do um, uh, in terms of differentiation between uh, planning, urban planning, urban design. But it really has to do with um, the the notion of a of a positive estimation of cities, and in the Aristotelian tradition, that's a positive estimation of cities that relates to human flourishing. Um, so that uh, in the in this Aristotelian tradition, uh, and you find this in the politics, uh, in uh, you know largely in Book Seven, uh, where he's detailing specifically about the characteristics of, of, of the polis. I mean, every time, I mean, again, it's interesting that uh, obviously the politics are a foundational document for uh, political science, political theory, political philosophy, but uh, it's it's almost always in, in, uh, in the modern world uh, discussed in terms of the state, right? But whenever you think of the state in Aristotle, he's talking about the city-state, right? He's talking about a polis. And you know, this is a this is a small uh, community of people in a in a finite area with a um, uh, a relationship to an immediately adjacent uh, uh, landscape, uh, generally an agricultural landscape, and and so um, 
we can't, I think this goes back to the question in a way, aren't cities bad? I mean, according to Aristotle, no, they're not bad. Um, cities are the way that most human beings uh, are able, and and I will say, you know, I mean, he lived in a society of, of you know, that, that had slaves, but the, the key insight, uh, you know, when you have a little more expansive notion of, of members of the human family, um, it, the key insight is that, that most human beings flourish in the kind of community that a city is. Um, now, there's different ways to flourish, and it all, it all also entails, it's not a kind of, um, what do I say, uh, formally deterministic uh, notion of flourishing. It's uh, because it's it's certainly related to the idea of um, uh, uh, virtue, right? As being uh, moral and intellectual virtue as being uh, essential to human beings living well. But but uh, whereas that's kind of the focus of the ethics, the focus of the politics is is well in what kinds of community human beings being social animals. What kind of communities um, really enable uh, human beings to live well and. And his understanding of the city is that a city is a community of communities, right? That that human beings flourish in community, large ones, small ones, or I say large ones. But the city, what he says is the is the highest because its ultimate end is human flourishing, and he, and it's a community of communities. So, um, uh, the, I mean, that's I think that's the, kind of the key insight um, that that human beings, most human beings flourish best in cities. And, and obviously he's not talking about, um, modern cities in terms of their scale. But I think that the, the, you know, the, the historical development of cities and thinking about how human beings do flourish in large cities, um, that, that we tend to flourish in large cities when we're parts of neighborhoods, right? When we, when we are, the neighborhood itself is a kind of in a large city, it's a it's a it's a community of neighborhoods, or I should say, it's a it's a yeah, it's a community of neighborhoods, and that it's in the neighborhood unit, which is about the physical and and uh, population size of a of a historic polis um, that that human beings find the relationships that that help us to flourish. One way that I've found it helpful to think about urbanism, and I think that uh, it all all of that is kind of a, a good overview of of what cities are we're trying to organize space formally and we're and and it's not just in like a city proper but it, like you were saying uh there's the the landscape that goes along with city that is connected to it and oriented to it uh there's a like a symbiosis of of those who live on the land and those who live in the city but they are both oriented toward that same uh, uh, community, and they they meet in the city. That's kind of the, the culmination of the organizational uh, arrangement of this of the city state in Aristotle, and kind of I think in the Notre Dame and new urbanist conception of urbanism. One of the interesting things that um, in recent years and is that I, for a long time, I had, um, begun courses in, um, in introductory courses to urban urbanism, to, to urban form, um, with this Aristotelian assumption about the, the purpose of cities, uh, being for human flourishing and that, but, uh, I, I, I finally, I, uh, 
gosh, 20 years ago, there was a, uh, 20 years ago, at least a, a good friend of mine recommended that I, that I read Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, which is, uh, is really a wonderful, a wonderful book because uh, Aristotle himself in talking about cities and human flourishing was not inventing this idea, right? This was an I this, this was, he was summarizing uh, all that he had observed about cities and what they do well and what they accomplish and 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 particularly in in book seven, he's kind of he's kind of having looked at a whole bunch of other cities, he's trying to pick out what are the best features of, of each. But but there had been you know in uh, in Greece there had been at least a five hundred year period of of the development of cities um, in Greece, and so he was just describing empirical conditions and drawing. Um, uh, inferences from from his observations, but Diamond looks at uh, uh, pre-urban civilization, right? He's looking at hunter-gatherer societies and and the transition from hunter-gatherer societies to to cities, and and so it's it's a it's a good it's a it's it's a place where now I now start introducing cities, right? To uh, to students starting with with a consideration of of pre-urban conditions which were essentially hunter gatherer and so you don't you don't really get and 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 diamond's book um and i think you know i think and this and this is not this is not a unique insight to him but it was a it was one of those things that i think that, that architects are not necessarily attuned to uh, uh when we study architecture is that the um there is this relationship well is that you don't have the development of cities until you have the development of agriculture Right, which is which are both place-based things, and they have to do, of course, with one of the things that you need for a city is a is a reliable source of food, and uh, and that this is what agriculture made possible. Now, Diamond, interestingly, goes on and says he thinks that agriculture is the worst mistake that human beings have made. Uh, well, but yeah, but I I mean I I disagree with him about that, of course, but but the point is is that no agriculture, no cities, and. Um, at, at, nor professors of anthropology at, at you know, university, um, but uh, or or professors of architecture for that matter. Um, but the uh, uh, it, it's it's really interesting because in the modern world we have this because of the nature of of the the impact of the industrial revolution on historic cities have moved to a kind of romanticization for two or three hundred years of of what we call nature. Uh, is something that we're not ourselves part of, right? Which is which is right. kind of no part of an Aristotelian or Thomist understanding of human beings as animals, as a certain kind of animal, and and so um, we tend to think of, you know, city as bad and nature as good. And I think one of the key insights of of, of Aristotle is uh, precisely this reciprocity between agricultural landscapes and uh, and uh, cityscapes, right? Because uh, farmers need a market for what they produce. City uh, residents of cities need food and market and, and farmers need a market right for what they what they produce. And so there's certainly a good way of life. I've I've, I've come to appreciate it from friends, architect friends who uh, actually one architect friend in particular who was also owned a cherry farm is that there is a good way of life, right that is that is agricultural, that is that is farm life. Um, but uh, but for most people, the kinds of communities, right, that that are needed to flourish are, are found in cities across a range of scales. So, uh, and again, I, I assume we'll get to that later in the conversation because urban, 
in at least in the way that that I um, teach it uh, to students uh, doesn't just mean big city, but it does it does imply a certain form and a certain mix of a certain characteristics and a mix of uses and a mix of activities, a certain community of communities that occurs at different scales. Um, but yes, it's it's absolutely so. There's not this inherent um, there's not this inherent opposition right between cities and the 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 natural and, ag- and agricultural landscape that in a way i think that the 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 proper way to think about cities is that it's the it's the primary way that the human animal occupies the landscape and so in that sense it's natural for human beings to make so and, and in the last 200 years we've just been particularly bad at making them i i, I don't think it goes actually i th- actually i think that's a, that's 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 too harsh because uh, I, I actually think that the the 19th century uh, is that there were there was some really good urbanism that that came about in the 19th century, particularly in the second half of the 19th century, that at there was a kind of I think I, I talked about peak California being 1958 to 1973, um, that there was a kind of peak moment in architectural history uh, where uh, the wealth produced by industrial society. Uh, and the kinds of institutions that came about um, met uh, a, a traditional way of thinking about architecture and urban space that resulted in some really spectacular uh, urban environments at big scale. And, th- and that's, uh, that's one of the characteristic features of modernity that's become problematic, right? Because the, the scale issue continues to, to grow. But, but in the 19th century, you get, you get, you know, the you know, the interventions in, uh, you know, in, in Paris and you get the, interve- the interventions in London and in Vienna and, and uh, even in New York City uh, or especially in the United States, this period between about 1880 and 1930 or 1940, um, which was absolutely modern industrial economy, produced the best architecture, right, that, that, the, that we've seen in the United States in terms of quantity and distribution, but that all changed really after, after the Second World War. I think that, that you have, it's not until uh, after 1945 that you have human settlements, the, the attempt to make human settlements that are centered around the automobile. Um, and that that's, that's, for me, that's the, not for me personally, but that's where I think that the big demarcation is um, with respect to, to city life. There's a lot of good, a lot of good urbanism up, you know, up, up through the, uh, the first three or four decades of the, of the 20th century. One of the one of the aspects about cities that you you talk about um, in, in your books is kind of looking toward the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is a city, which is an interesting image used biblically. You know, we one of the one of the interesting dynamics in the Bible is that it starts in a garden and ends in a city, and that dynamic. But is is the New Jerusalem just? kind of an eschatological reality or is is the the creation of I don't want to say perfect communities but but certainly communities that operate justly and for human flourishing and specifically in a Catholic context that it promotes the the highest good of the human person which is salvation you know there's some what do I say primary images of of the fullness of the, you know, of the kingdom of God. Um, and it's, uh, 
it's envisioned as a kind of, you know, I, I would, it seems to me that the premier, the primary ones are the envisioning of it as a banquet, right? That it's a, that it's a, it's, it's a heavenly banquet, but that, but the other one is, as you, as you say, is, uh, is the idea of the new Jerusalem, which is, um, you know, I mean, it, scholars trace this back. I mean, there's this, there's a kind of, there's a kind of anti-urbanism, um, that, that, exists in the Bible, not anti-urbanism, but a, a, an understanding of urbanism. And there's a sort of a recognition of the, the, the foundational violence, right? That, that, uh, that is, um, a part of urbanism, right? So that, so that we have these, um, stories of, you know, uh, Cain, you know, uh, after he kills Abel, he's exiled and becomes the founder of the first city, um, that in the founding of Rome, right? There's a, a uh, a foundational act uh, of violence of, of Romulus uh, against Remus in the in the creation of Rome, and so the guy that really sort of zeroes in on on these kinds of things about the relationship of violence, and there's a lot of people who study this, <laughs> obviously, but but uh, but Rene Girard um, uh, has um, dealt with this the the notions of the the place of violence. Uh, in the founding of both cities and of religion, and um, and the practices of scapegoating, and he's he's got this whole theory of uh, mimetic desire and and rivalry and scapegoating that that I you know I think that actually once you once you sort of understand what he's talking about the dynamic um, and and see it you can't unsee it. And one of the interesting things is that his lifetime of pursuit of this led him to revert back to Christianity, that he had been a kind of, you know, French deconstructionist and his study of, of literature and myth um, led him back to Christianity because he realized that Christianity was different, um, that, that he found the scapegoating and the violence in, as an anthropological phenomenon, but that Christianity was different because it looked at scapegoating and, and actually biblical religion, Judaism as well looked at it from the point of view, the scapegoating from the point of view of the victim, right? Rather than the, the, um, the perpetrators. Now, how did I get on that? I've lost the, I've lost the thread of, of the beginning, the, the, the beginning question, but it, I guess the, the question is, uh, is it possible to have cities that reflect the new Jerusalem? I, uh, I right, so frame right. it a little bit differently. We have all these violent cities in, in, yes. in the life, you know, the world we live in. Uh, the right. origins are violent. Um, is it possible before the eschaton to achieve? Yeah, yeah. So a great question, and I remember sort of what 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 started me off on that on that um, uh, uh, apparent digression, but really not. I was I was hoping you would mention Cain. Cain and yeah, yeah, yeah. Cain and Abel. So anyway, so but what what happens in Jewish uh, in Judaism is that at a certain point. There comes to be a more positive estimation of the city, uh, and it, it it has to do with Jerusalem. It has to do with the building of the temple, um, uh, and and so that 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 the city of Jerusalem and uh, and and worship right in Jerusalem. I mean, it's it's really interesting because Aristotle has this theory of the polis, but uh, you know the the uh, I mean sacred cities and, and and Jerusalem that that tradition of of cities that positive estimation. Of, of Jerusalem, uh, as opposed to as opposed to Babylon, right, sinful city, um, is is much much older, right, than than Aristotle, 
Um, and and uh, I think that is that has really interesting implications for the the development of ideas about cities, both in well in the Greco-Roman world, uh, but also the meeting of Christianity and how that gets wed to ideas of the New Jerusalem uh, and and the eschaton. So. Um, so the New Jerusalem is because, of course, you know, one of the, the major differentiations between Christianity and a secular view of the world and a modern view of the world um, is the is the Christian understanding of uh, of creation uh, as being good. Right. But fallen. Right. And so uh, so that human beings are good, but fallen. Right. And and, and in need of redemption, you know, in, but it's not simply human beings. It's also creation itself that somehow somehow is implicated um, in the in the fall of and actually this goes back to Gerard I mean so the the um, uh, you know through the you know the sacrifice of Christ right it's possible for sin to be forgiven and our you know our nature restored and that and that that projects forward right it projects forward to a um, a, a culmination a fruition a completion of of creation um, understood and presented in in the book of revelation which is not an uncontroversial book uh in the book of revelation as the new jerusalem descending uh you know descending from heaven and so it is this eschatological thing now it's so the reason i i, I bring this up about uh this, the origins of cities and violence um uh, is that that begins to change uh in uh in the old testament uh with the you know the the, the rise of worship in Jerusalem and uh, an understanding of, of those obligations and the creation of the temple. And, and there's a kind of positive estimation of, of cities that, um, that, that comes out of that, that really remains, um, uh, you know, arguably central to the entire biblical tradition, uh, uh, both Jewish and Christian uh, to the, to the present day. Um, but certainly in the Christian imagination, the, it informs this, um, this notion of of the eschaton as the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, um, the wiping away of all tears of you know the the fullness and fulfillment of creation, which is also understand understood uh, as urban, but it's also understood as as a new heaven and a new earth. So that you know one of my favorite, probably my favorite painting for uh, for example, my is um, the Ghent altarpiece um, central lower register of which is the depiction of paradise uh, as a gathering of of the faithful and also righteous gentiles right that's one of the components of the van Eyck painting but but uh but all who are saved by christ and um and the context is is a is a garden and a city right so it, it really is this depiction of new heaven and new earth as a you know in 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 15th century uh flanders um and quite quite charming because a lot of those buildings actually that they that they painted are still standing um, there today but this um, um, anyway so so it, it's it's uh, it seems to me it's always I've always been taken by the uh, the centrality of the, the urban character right of of paradise and of the fulfillment of of creation and um, one of the things about actually I think it was a it was an essay on that piece, a very influential essay that 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 uh, that I read in 1980, um, and that I've assigned to students uh, ever since. is is an analysis of that painting that looks at it in terms of uh, paradise as this um, 
as this uh, affirmation of two aspects of, uh, of, of human flourishing, uh, uh, the aspect of, of individual freedom and the aspect of communal belonging. And that in the, in the Ghent altarpiece, you have the garden as kind of the, the representation of, of, uh, of human freedom and the city as the, uh, as the representation of, of communal belonging. But that it's interesting that the communal belonging, uh, the good of communal belonging, there's a, there, it has a tendency toward tyranny. But the skyline is depicted as a kind of casual arrangement of buildings. But the the garden, uh, the 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 perversion of which is 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 anarchy, right, and selfishness is um, is occupied by um, uh, ordered classes, right, of of people, uh, you know, uh, who are who are uh, at the altar worshiping, and um, and so it kind of again, it, in so many ways, it balances these two these two great goods. Of both individual freedom and and communal belonging. So so, it, but but that's that's an eschatological thing, and it and I think that the, there's a whole other issue, which I I think has simply to do with the sacramental uh, uh, character of, of urbanism that that has to do with the way that beautiful things, including beautiful cities, and in the way that communities uh, anticipate that both anticipate and participate in in this eschatological reality. Yeah, going going back to what what you said about scapegoating being about the victim, and in Christianity, it 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 kind of that moment of the sacrifice of Christ uh, and the salvation, which finds its fulfillment in the eschaton, but really acts even in this life sacramentally, like you were saying, and and it it relates to worship and worship being central to the positive view of the city that comes out of the Bible. And I think that continues in the development of Christian cities um, after, after the resurrection, that the, the central piece there is both the action of, of the political community, but also the formal organization of the city is centered on worship. So one of the things that, that interests me, so I, I, um, I've been teaching this course for the last three years uh, and really enjoying it. The course is called Catholicism and the City. And, uh, and I offer it, it's open to the, you know, anybody in the university. Um, but, and it's, but it's offered through the architecture program. And it's primarily about urban form. I would say two-thirds to, yeah, two-thirds of the course is about urban form, both uh, looked at typologically in terms of urban spatial types um, and and then also brief kind of history right because it's, a, it's just, I have this again this sort of Aristotelian view that that uh, you know that all of these uh, all in, uh, all of these urban spatial types have histories uh, however much they might correspond or anticipate in some way to some you know platonic or, or uh, in my view divine order but the the other third of it, uh, has to do with looking looking at cities from the point of view of a Catholic, Catholic intellectual tradition that uh, acknowledges both the the truths that can be known by reason um, and the truths that can be that can only be known by revelation. And so uh, I you know and and of that portion of the course, I would say three quarters of that um, is really devoted to looking at characteristics of cities that. Um, are are true of of all human cities, um, and uh, but that looking 
uh, at it than through the lens of Christian revelation, because because looking at it through the lens of reason is also looking at it through a, a Catholic lens. But looking at it uh, in terms of revelation is uh, really has to do with the eschatological character and the sacramental character of cities, and also the the the, the basic. Christian anthropology, understanding human beings as good but fallen, as being a composite of body and soul, right? That it's not, that it's a, a kind of affirmation of the material world, both, uh, both as created goodness and its sacramental uh, potential. The rest of it, uh, a large part of it is also characteristic of, um, there's certain characteristics of cities that are anthropological, right? And so they, they don't, they're not only characteristic of Christian cities and they're not only the prerogative of, of Christians, but that they're, um, they are ways that human beings naturally uh, behave, right, in order to to flourish. And um, uh, and of course, I think you know that the the Christian, the 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 Catholic intellectual tradition illuminates that uh, in a in a in a deeper way. But but there's also this you know there's an attempt to engage the students through disciplines of of economics and uh, political philosophy and uh, environmental issues and and even demographics, right? And again, this is all this is all kind of Aristotelian. One of the first points that Aristotle makes about about cities is that you have to have a population, right? That that the, the both human beings and buildings are the are material causes, right, of cities. And um, and absent, you, I mean, you certainly you don't have a city absent buildings, but you don't have a you don't have a city absent human beings. So you talked a little bit about the, the anthropological city, uh, you know, versus the redeemed city or the the Christian city, uh, but but th- there are features common to them and that promote human flourishing. Could you yeah. could you go in a little bit in on that, what those features are? Yeah, it, it's that's that's a great question, and I also I, it also makes me think of. Um, you know the city of God, uh, uh, of which I'm not. I'm not a. I mean, Augustine's city of God, uh, you know, which I'm. I'm not a. I'm not a deep scholar. But there are these interesting moments in the city of God where Augustine is um, juxtaposing the city of man and the city of God, where the city of man is. Uh, uh, how does he phrase it? It's pursuing the desires of the self to the exclusion of God, uh, and the city of God pursuing the you know the the will of God to the to the detriment of self, right? And of course, finding oneself in the in in doing that. But there's this kind of uh, sharp division between the city of man and the city of God. But then there's these other passages, and I th- it's either book 17 or book 19, where he talks about the characteristics of uh, of earthly peace, right? And cities of earthly peace, where he's he's talking about that the the church doesn't really care about uh, the city of God, makes no scruples regarding. Uh, languages regarding customs, regarding you know ways of life in other places, so long only as um, as the, the the true worship of God is not inhibited, right? And and so um, and so there's a, a a more positive estimation, right, of the of the of the city of man, if you will, uh, uh, as as something on its way to redemption, right? And so. So you get both of these these kinds of, of strands. So so in a more specific way, with with re- respect to your question about anthropological characteristics, I, I think that the the foremost characteristics of pre-modern cities, as they developed, and they didn't, you know, and again they have a history, right? So it took time to 
to develop um, uh, these formal characteristics, but uh, that that cities are spatial, and I mean spatial in a very specific sense. Space as as a as a as a shaped void, as a figural void, and these and these um, uh, urban spatial types uh, can be centralized. Uh, they're centralized types. They're that are you know, both both public and semi-public. There are uh, linear types. The most common of which is the street, but which eventually develops you know into variations of that, both sort of hierarchically more important and less important. I mean, hierarchically more important like avenues or boulevards and hierarchically less important like alleys, right? But they're all kind of uh, variations on this original, really maybe the, the oldest urban spatial type is the street um, and the plaza. But but you look at the history and, you know, plazas are uh, are older than squares, right? And, avenue, and streets are older than avenues and, and and avenues are older than boulevard, and plazas are older than squares. And so it, you, you look at the history of, of this kind of development. So the first thing is that cities, as they develop, are spatial in that way because, because it's, it's more about public life. Cities historically have been more about public life than private life. And of course, there's a big, huge difference uh, in the way that we organize the, the you know, human settlements today, um, automobile suburbs, right, that are where the, we, it's not a spatial environment. It's a, it's a, it's a what Steve Peterson uh, refers to as an anti-spatial environment because it's it's really the opposite. And and Nathaniel, you, I, I think you get this intuitively because the you know the the difference between space, what Peterson calls space, and what he calls anti-space is that uh, space uh, is a figural void that is shaped by buildings, uh, and so the space is the object and the building is the background. But anti-space is a condition where the the void is continuous, flowing, formless, and the buildings are the objects, right? In the uh, in, in the anti-spatial condition, and he and he and he just he he makes the distinction. He's not saying space is good and anti-space is bad. He's saying that space is one thing and anti-space is its opposite. It's an interesting dynamic too, because you do have that public space that's that's shaped by buildings, but you also have buildings that are places in themselves and you know going back to the idea of worship is is the idea of going to a building which is a which is a which becomes a public space inside but right on the outside it's part of that defining uh aspect of of yeah of public space and so it's kind of a dynamic between the public space uh where people gather and the places to which they are going. Yeah, this is kind of the revolutionary thing about about the Noli map of Rome, right? Which is something that's familiar to all, to, certainly to all Notre Dame architecture students. But for the sake of uh, listeners who are not Notre Dame architecture students, well, the Noli map was—it's uh, it, actually—it's a great story, right? It, is that the the city fathers in the 18th century they wanted uh, they wanted a uh, a a map of Rome for kind of survey purposes, and they hired Giampattista Noli, and and he produced as only the Italians could do. You know, he produced for this for utilitarian, you know, political purposes. He produced this gorgeous uh, map. You know that that uh, you know had had you know all kinds of architectural perspectives. You know, in the corners and and um, uh, you know a, a beautiful sort of frame for the city map itself. But the really revolutionary thing about the city map is that he documented the places of all the buildings uh, within the city of Rome. But he made he made 
there was a continuity. He created a continuity. So he used a, uh, a type of drawing that has come to be known as, as a figure ground drawing uh, among architects, although that genre came into being in large part because of, because of the Noli map. Um, but but where you, you treat the solids as, you treat the buildings as solids and as dark, and you treat the, the voids, the spaces, as light. And so you look at the map and you can see you know, streets and courtyards and plazas and piazzas and, uh, that, are, you know, that are depicted in the map. But the brilliant thing about the Noli map is that he made the, the internal spaces of the sacred and civic buildings, he made those continuous with the exterior spaces of the city. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And so he's, he's depicting in the map um, the, the sacred and civic realm both interior and exterior. And, and, and so the kind of thing that, that, that Nathaniel's talking about with respect to hierarchy of building types, you know, you can look at that map, which is just a plan. It's just a plan drawing. It's not three-dimensional, I think. And you can see, you can tell what are the sacred buildings, right? What are the, you know, what are the sacred and civic buildings and how they relate to the public spaces of, of the city, which are, again, hierarchically, urbanistically, they're more important, right? That, because they're more public. Um, but that you have this gradation. And, and yeah, I, I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into sort of issues of, of Poche and things like that. But, but it's, a really, it's a really revolutionary method that, 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 again, in a plan drawing, beautifully depicts this reciprocal relationship between, uh, uh, between uh, the solids of buildings and also in their internal spaces and the, the, the figural voids of, uh, of the city, the plazas and the squares and the courtyards, and things like that. So, Philip, am I understanding you correctly then that one of the things about this map and about um, caring about space in this way, as opposed to the kind of anti-spaces that um, maybe are prioritized today and a lot of how um, suburban development happens today, that it's actually important for human flourishing that we care about space and that's something we've been neglecting and that's part of what the urbanist movement is is trying to recapture is trying to bring us back to a focus on these maybe um spaces that bring us together interiorly and exteriorly and that give us a context for that common good yes no no it's very much like that um and uh, again the interesting thing is that um and, and i, I want to if i in case i forget i want to get back to the question about anthropological characteristics right but 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 i guess what i want to say is that Prior to the modern era, cities, as they developed historically, tended to be spatial in, in just the way that we've described, and that they were, in fact, um, the physical forms of community. Uh, and it's where it was, the, it was the medium of public life, right? It's where public life took place, where in the plazas and in the, and in the streets, and and that, and that this did change in the modern world, um, and it changed because of, I would say, of a, of a kind of overemphasis upon individual freedom uh, that, that it's very interesting. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, right, talked about uh, in, in Democracy in America, where he, you know, he said that America, uh, that democracy in America, which he was generally in favor of, and he, and he was an, an admirer of the Americans, he said that 
it it creates this tendency toward individualism, um, where he says every every person imagines gathers with his family in a you know in a in a small environment and and uh, focuses his life there and tends not to think about his uh, his ancestors and not to think about his progeny, and he's writing this in 1840. And it's like it's like he's, he's in a way he's kind of predicting uh, a suburban physical environment that couldn't exist until we invented the automobile. Right. And 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 another I mean, I would say like mass media as well. Yes. Yeah. Connect that dot for me. There's a certain sense in which these cities historically developed out of necessity that that people needed to come together for survival and therefore their cities uh, developed in such a way to make that possible. When we have uh, first the automobile, um, and that uh, mass media following shortly upon that, you have communication that can happen locally, and the the uh, the travel in an automobile being being isolated, and so you you don't have the need for public space in the same way uh, that you do historically. Um, and uh, again, like these urban forms come out of the form of community that exists in, in the society. Well, so I, w- I want to say that I think that that's, that that's part of it. And maybe this is a, a point bringing in another anthropological um, thing, which is that, that human beings are walking animals. Uh, and the the historic size of cities prior to the invention of mechanical means of transportation, almost everywhere they start out as settlements that are about a half mile by a half mile. It was the size of the Roman castrum. It was the size of the Greek colonial city. Uh, it's the size of a small town. Um, you know, and in, in, you know even even you know into the modern era uh, prior to the invention of mechanized means of transport. And what's the significance of that half mile by half mile? It's that that's the distance that a human being can walk in about 10 minutes. Interesting. Edge to edge, you, you can walk you can walk these settlements edge to edge in 10 minutes and from center to edge in five minutes, right? So this five to 10 minute walk. And, and, and the other thing about that is that because of that anthropological, you know, anthropological condition of human beings as walkers, uh, uh, and, and, and because these things were, uh, often founded under conditions of scarcity or they were founded in conditions of, uh, against scarcity, you know, the wealth is something that human beings create out of the natural resources that we find. Right. And so cities are, they're an environmental thing that the way that the human animal occupies the landscape, but they're also an economic thing. They're places of production and exchange of agricultural goods, but also other kinds of goods that are increased by the presence of human ingenuity, uh, and that, and that when cities grow, you know, they would historically, they would grow in, in increments that, uh, you know, even if you couldn't, you know, the the city might, would, would, you know, grow beyond a half mile by a half mile, but again, it would grow in those kinds of patterns where you could still get to a variety of uses, right. Uh, um, on foot, um, and eventually, and, and, you know, so, so, there are studies, and I haven't I haven't studied this closely, but uh, you you certainly see, uh, you know, in the in the settlement of you know of the United States in the in the European you know um, westward 
settlement, you know, is that is that, you know, land being divided up in the American continental grid and, you know, in in these units of of square miles and townships and then quarter sections, which are, you know, half mile by half mile, which is 160 acres, that that there's just a whole lot of settlements, right, that take place, you know, within within those those parameters that that I that I would contend are anthropological because you can you can see these precedents um, all over the world, right, in terms of how human beings begin to make cities, which is again, cities and agriculture go together, right? Because hunter-gatherers by definition are nomads, right? They're, they're, they, they may return to a place seasonally, but they're, they're moving. And, and, and so urban culture and, and agriculture are place-based things, right? Where, where human beings take root. And, and so the forms that you get are spatial because um, they become spatial because there is this reciprocity between, they, they, let's see, it is a place for public life, but they become spatial also because the the land becomes more valuable as human beings occupy it in increasing density, and so build closer together, right? Uh, you, uh, it, that that there's a there's something historically really weird, and I think it has to do with subsidies uh, of the American suburban landscape, whether these detached buildings on you know, on large lots that that um, again require a car to get to get everywhere everywhere that you're going, and um, if I can just go back to Tocqueville for a second too, he he regarded he said individualism. He said the the threat to American democracy was individualism, which he said is different from selfishness. He said selfishness is a is a sensibility and inclination that we all have, but he says individualism is something new uh, historically. Uh, new and and he goes on to talk about how this this sense of well-being that's understood as essentially private and many describes this circumstance in America and that and he sees this as a danger to democracy interestingly um, because it, it it takes people away from focusing on public life and the common good which is again part of the ambition at least professed ambition of the American founders right was was this yeoman, Farmer, or or even you know even you know small towns and and you know and and uh, local businesses and things like that 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 together uh, produce this you know create this this community. And Tocqueville says um, individualism undercuts that. It's a temptation in democracy, and Americans fight it by um, uh, by means of religion and by means of free associations and also by strong families. Yeah, I mean you can think about the implications of that, right? <laughs> For, for some of the difficulties that we have in, in, uh, in American democracy today, uh, where he kind of took those for granted, I think, as being, as being goods and essential, and, and that's, that's not, can't take that for granted, um, that that's, that's a universal sensibility these days. So I think that's a great jumping off point to an important question, which is uh, thinking about the anthropological city, Christian city, and, and how there are challenges today to achieving those. What do we do? Uh, what do we do to promote the anthropological city, but also the Catholic city? Uh, and yeah. I think you've you've you, you've spent a lot of your career thinking about that in the context of large cities, neighborhoods, small cities. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I am. I'm really interested in that, and um, and obviously this is a this is a topic that is you know, being much discussed these days, I think with, you know, with the revival interest in, 
in integralism and uh, uh, what's come to be called integralism and the despair in some ways, or at least the, the if despair is not the right word, uh, about liberal democracy, about, about liberalism. I, I'm interested in this both big scale and small scale. And I think I um, I think that the, the the big scale project that 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 where that's manifested is in a a studio project that uh, I've given uh, to to graduate urban design students beginning in 2011. I've I've done four or five studios where the focus is on imagining metropolitan Chicago uh, at the bicentennial of Daniel Burnham and Edward Bennett's plan of Chicago of 1909. And so uh, trying to imagine Chicago in 2109, where uh, starting with Chicago as it is today, but also referring back to the Burnham plan of 1909 and, and taking that as an authoritative reference point, but also critiquing it um, and then using that as well, those, that set of assumptions to critique and analyze present day Chicago to imagine what I would call, I mean, it, it really does fit into a kind of, you know, ideal city type, but I think it's not, I think it's not utopian. And that's actually something also that I think is a, differentiates um, the classical humanist tradition and, and Catholicism, you know, a, a Catholic view of, of politics is that, is that because of our fallen condition, uh, we're not, you know, I, in some ways the, the best we can do by the grace of God is the uh, is the experience is the sacramental experience of the sacramental presence of God in a number of ways, including in cities, but that that we can't really expect the full blown New Jerusalem. Uh, we can't immunitize the eschaton, right? We can we can we can we can we can uh, we can sacrament we can we, we can have the experience the sacramental experience of it, but we can't we can't build it <laughs> uh, in its in its fullness. So the question is for me. Well, in this in this proposal for Chicago, the, the interesting thing is about the Burnham plan is that it was sort of the last first and last. Uh, there have been others, but the, the first and most complete attempt in some ways. And he didn't quite describe it this way, but I, it's not unfair. It's not an unfair character, characterization, I think, to apply the, the principles of, of uh, classical humanist urbanism to uh, problems and challenges of the modern industrial city. Of which Chicago, you know, in 1909, Chicago was in the midst of a 50-year period of being the fastest-growing city in the world, and it it grew, it grew from like 500,000 in 1880 to 3.6 million in 1930. So it grew by over five decades. It grew by 600,000 people a decade, so 60,000 people a year. And Burnham, and it was it was the Wild West. I mean, there are these you know amazing photographs of um, you know of, of of commerce right in Chicago and wagons you know with, with you know with wood you know <laughs> with timber uh, on at the corner of you know uh, State Street and, and Madison. It was just it was chaos. And Burnham was trying to bring a kind of order to this that was that was a physical order, but it was also. Uh, he was trying to civilize, right, commercial culture. It was. It's interesting too because it was not a, it was not a project that was funded by city government. It was a project that was funded by the Commercial Club of Chicago, and so you know he he knew where his bread was buttered, and he was interested in facilitating the growth of commerce. But he wanted to constrain it. He wanted to do it in a way that gave uh, where where there was a proper physical formal expression for civic life 
uh, of which commerce is a part, but which which was not simply looking at the city as a as a commercial strictly as an economic enterprise. Which is that how we tend to look at cities today, and in fact is what what seems to drive cities today that they're they're exclusively a kind of economic enterprise. So Burnham was looking at it in this. He doesn't mention Aristotle, but he's in this long tradition. He, he is talking about the history of urbanism. That that's in this kind of Aristotelian tradition of cities as places of human flourishing. So I'm interested in in imagining Chicago, this project that, that I've had that students have worked on, and and you know, and again, there's there's an, there, there there's no preconceived design that comes into this, but it's a it's this classical humanist sensibility and and the Burnham precedent and Chicago as it exists today. What can Chicago look like in 2109? And that's absolutely, in my mind, uh, related to a kind of Catholic view of human nature and of cities as anticipations of the of the New Jerusalem. And uh, and some students were were okay with that, and some students not. But there, again, there are there are these points of interest that are common to Catholics and non-Catholics alike uh, in terms of, of urban form. So I, I I'll. I'll, if you have questions about that, I'm happy to pursue it. I'll, I'll stop with that. But the, I'll, I will add this one thing, which is that in Burnham, he has no place for for religion, and he was not he was not irreligious. Uh, and in fact, there's been some really there's some really interesting articles that that describe how his uh, ambitions for Chicago and for creating a public realm and creating making a beautiful making Chicago a beautiful city for the flourishing of all of its inhabitants. Uh, how that was informed by his uh, Swedenborgian, which is a kind of you know Lutheran offshoot, Pietist Lutheran offshoot, um, his his Swedenborgian upbringing, and he has a you know in the Burnham Plan uh, document, the Plan of Chicago document itself, which is called the Plan of Chicago, not the Burnham Plan, but the that where he he talks about the the difficulty of of making a religious center. Uh, in Chicago, because of the sheer pluralism, right, of of everything, and 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 so he he says, you know, we all have this view of the European city and the you know the the beauty of the church fronting the the public plaza and you know the 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 emblem of of the community, but he says he 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 opined that maybe the best that we could do was sort of replicate something like that in in the suburbs of Chicago, but that it was really difficult to imagine how, given Chicago's pluralism. You could you could do that in Chicago. So one of the things that 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 I asked the students to do uh, was to think about how to register the notion of sacred order in the historic center of Chicago uh, uh, that Burnham thought was not possible to do. And and so, um, but it 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 was done with a kind of optimistic view in that respect of liberalism that. Free exercise and non-establishment was a way for uh, different religious communities to pursue their understanding of reality in a way that that meant that they didn't have a they didn't have a privileged position in the culture. So in that respect, uh, it's not it's not integralist. So my my thoughts about integralism, Catholic integralism today, is that there's some very strong arguments that are be, being made by people, you know, and the Josiah's uh, Institute. And I'm thinking of, um, especially, I, I, there's almost, I, I occasionally read things by um, Otter, Otter Edmund Waldstein, which I, I find really uh, convincing. And I've been, I've been kind of collared at conferences by, you know, David Scheidler and by uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one, of his, one of his colleagues in, in D.C. 
and and they make really good arguments about the desirability of that. But it's just it's just very hard for me to imagine in our current political situation that the, that that could be that it, uh, a, that a Catholic integralism is is possible in our current circumstances. But now, how do you get from here to there? I mean, and they don't they they acknowledge that too as something that that is a is is a problem. But so in the meantime, you know, in in the interim, it seems to me that that trying to emphasize um, you know, religious freedom. And again, this is, these are, again, things that come out of Vatican II, and there's good things that came out of Vatican II and not so good things that came out of Vatican II. But I think that, you know, some of the basic documents are, um, are, are good. That's a controversial thing too. But uh, that it is a, um, that, that's how it wound up being expressed in the, in the work that was done for what, what came to be called Our Lady's Plan of Chicago 2109. And actually that's online. Um, uh, on the website, if uh, at cool. least on a, on its website, if you want to take a look at it, but but that's just a part of it because it, it tries to deal with it, it's it's trying to look at a at the city at the scale of a metropolitan region, an Aristotelian understanding of the city at a metropolitan region that views the city and the agrarian landscape in reciprocal relationship and that it's spatial and all that kind of stuff. So it's th- so that's kind of where I'm where I'm I've been thinking about these things. Yeah, I'd say. Um, it'd be a very fun conversation to have, uh, about, um, sort of the direct intersection of integralism and architecture today. Uh, and I would love to have it, but I think we'd need another podcast, another hour hours for it. Um, in terms of kind of workability, I would just say that I think the, the integralist perspective, quote unquote, in so much as there is one is that. Yeah, I think today you look around the American landscape, there's no question we're incredibly far away from anything like the ideal. But I think part of the reason that integralism has become um, such a powerful intellectual movement, especially among millennials and Gen Z Catholics who look around and are just so dissatisfied by what's on offer, is the realization that things are actually so bad right now, so corrupt right now, that yeah there's no question we've got to work practically each day with whatever little thing you can do each day to to try to uh make an improvement wherever you can make an improvement um but at the same time none of the half measures um are actually stable long-term solutions and are effectively not all that desirable from a catholic point of view anyway so even if I mean, I don't think any integralist looks around today and predicts a kind of Catholic monarchy of the United States of America in the coming decade. But I think we do look around and say, well, what is this for and what is it supposed to be? And once we have an idea of what it's supposed to be, then at least you know what the direction you're going in as you try to make all these little improvements in your area of life every day may be. And one of those those areas, I mean, being since we're talking about urbanism, uh, you were talking about the metropolitan scale, but, um, and, and I think we're, we're going to wrap up pretty soon here, but the going down to the neighborhood scale and making interventions there and what I kind of term affectionately as integral urbanism, where you have, where you have these pockets of urbanism where the focus is on religion. And the worship of yeah. God, and th- there are projects that you've worked on, and others have worked on that really try to shape 
our cities around churches or like parish communities, parish uh, property. Um, I hate to say I. I'm going to need to cut us off precisely because I need to run to one such parish community, but I'm actually serving mass here in just a minute. Uh, and I'm recording today from Tours in France. So uh, actually a very urban, a very spatial, a very walkable city with churches on public squares. So I'm very blessed to be over here at the moment. Yeah. But uh, I am going to need to run and do that. Um, but I want to thank you both just so, so much for for coming on today and talking about these questions with us. And it may be that we've raised enough things today that we should at some point down the line plan a follow-up episode where we can delve deeper into some of it as well. Um, but Philip, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Thank you. And uh, and I would be I would be happy to pursue the conversation. I mean, it's a very it's it's a very important subject, and and I and I want to say I'm I'm also I'm completely uh, in agreement and sympathetic with Nathaniel about how this is pursued at the local level, and uh, and so yeah, I'd I'd love to continue. There's, there's a whole lot more that we could talk about, and uh, I want to thank you though for the invitation, and and if we if and I'd be happy to do it again if you'd like to. Absolutely, and Nathaniel, thanks so much for being here to lead our conversation today. Absolutely, thank you, thank you, Professor. Thanks very very much. I'd like to also thank Joe Barnes, who will produce this episode. And by the way, uh, Philip Joe Barnes uh, said to say hello to you for him. I think he was one of your students at a Thomistic Institute, something at the DHS a couple summers ago, and walked away with great memories of that. Uh, thanks also to Jonathan Colbreth for our music today. Thank you to all of our listeners here, and thanks especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Josias podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash Josias to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Jus et Justitium, and find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. <laughs>